This morning I've titled our message, Meet Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Meet Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I might, I probably should add in parentheses, part one. Meet Jesus Christ, the Son of God, part one. Because I want to take some time this morning to sort of introduce you to the whole gospel, to overview and preview the gospel, so that we'll kind of be able to see the path that we're going to be winding down for uh, weeks to come. And so the introduction to Mark's gospel is really verses 1 through 13, but we're only going to make it through verse 8 this morning because of some introductory issues that I want to be sure to communicate to you. But we're going to be this morning in the gospel of Mark, verses, cha- chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. So having said that, you can just open that, hold your place there, and we'll get there momentarily, okay? From the earliest days of the church... In other words, the Bible's been written, and Mark has been written, and the question is, well, who wrote it, right? From the earliest days of the church, Christians have maintained that the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark. We don't have any copies of the manuscripts of Mark that don't say at the top the Gospel of Mark. It's likely that Mark's Gospel was the first Gospel, and he probably started the tradition of saying, hey, this is, this is the Gospel that I'm writing. The Gospel of Mark, then, is written by John Mark, and it's, this Mark is, is the son of Mary, mentioned in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, whose home was a meeting place for early believers. John Mark is likely Barnabas' cousin, the one who went on the first missionary journey alongside of Paul until he eventually turned back and frustrated Paul. Later, Paul and John Mark's relationship is mended, and Mark ends up teaming up with Peter in Rome. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter refers to Mark, John Mark, as my son. You say, why are you telling me all this? Because Mark's gospel looks a lot like Peter's preaching. Okay, so you say, well, what am I reading here? You're likely reading an account or summary of the gospel that is derived from the apostle Peter's preaching in Rome. It played a central role in how we get the gospel. Mark wrote in the mid to late 50s, and his gospel is the shortest and most compact of the gospels. Things happen immediately in the gospel of Mark. Edward says Jesus is portrayed as a man of action. Aiken describes the gospel as fast-moving and hard-hitting, and adds it is often noted as much for what it omits as what it includes. For example, you'll not find Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. You won't find the angels and the shepherds or the Sermon on the Mount. It's not that these things are not important, by the way. That's why the other Gospels do include them. But Mark's desire is to get quickly to this point. Jesus is the authoritative, miracle-working Son of God. So we get a brief introduction, and then Jesus is preaching the kingdom, and He's working miracles right away. And this Son of God, here's the greatest miracle of all, He came to die for many. Mark's Gospel divides into two basic sections. In chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 26, Mark presents Jesus, the Son of God, as the powerful Messiah. And then in chapter 8, 27, through the end of the book, Jesus is presented as the Son of God, the suffering servant. Mark begins with this introduction in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 1, where he highlights for us Jesus' preparation for ministry in the wilderness. 
this morning we consider verses 1 through 8. Would you hear now the word of God? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. Who will prepare your way? The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And while he was preaching and saying... Excuse me, and he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? God, help us to dive deep into the identity of Jesus as the Son of God this morning. Help us to comprehend. Uh, more fully, the amazing grace that you have bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ. I ask it all for His glory and in His name. Amen. Now there's a, there's a prerequisite to getting the sermon this morning. Normally, we summarize the sermon in a sentence and then unpack that sentence. But before we get to the summary sentence this morning, there's a prerequisite. And it is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the gospel about Jesus Christ, stands alone. There is no other gospel that is good news for the Christian. Or really, that's good news for anyone, spiritually speaking. There are rival gospels. Paul warns us about rival gospels, and he says, if anybody comes and preaches to you any other gospel, then get away from them. Count them accursed. Even if an angel comes and preaches to you another gospel of a different kind, then get away from them. Mark tells us he's writing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel here is written in a singular form. Often, the word gospel or good tidings occurs in the plural. Because when there's a military victory or a political victory, there's a lot of good stories that roll out of that. But what Mark wants you to know is though we have four different perspectives on the life of Jesus in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are all telling the same story. They're like photographs of the same Jesus from different vantage points, but there's only one Gospel. And it is the good news of God in Jesus Christ beside which there is no other. The reason we're here this morning and not somewhere else hearing about a different story is because there's no other story that compares to or rivals the story of Jesus, the anointed Messiah, the Son of God. And if you want to hear good news, that means you must hear about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's nowhere else to find Good news. Why do we send church planters across North America? Why do we invest to send missionaries around the world with this one gospel? Because there are rival gospels all around the world that are bankrupt and will send people to an eternity in hell. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Edwards adds from the outset, Mark announces the content of the gospel is the person of Jesus. 
When Jesus arrives, the beginning of the fulfillment of the gospel has come, which is why in verse 1 he says the beginning of the gospel. It's not that the gospel begins in Mark, the gospel begins in Genesis, but the gospel is beginning to be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. All the Old Testament promises of God are wrapped up and summarized and incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ. And Mark does not want us to experience the goodness of does not want us to miss the goodness of the good news. And that means we must know Jesus, the Son of God. So, to know Jesus, the Son of God, John Mark begins to show us some things that we must do. First, we must see that Jesus fulfills God's promises. Secondly, we must confess and repent of our sins. Thirdly, we must recognize Jesus' might and His worthiness. And finally, we must be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Not to worry, you'll get the blanks filled in as we go. First, we must see that Jesus fulfills God's promises. We see this in verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. You see, throughout the Old Testament, we are trained to seek God's Son and His King who will come to deliver God's people. We saw this most recently in Psalm chapter 2 when the Lord said to His Son that He would inherit the nations. We we see it really from Genesis chapter 3 forward. The Old Testament keeps on urging us to trust God to send a son, the offspring of a woman, the seed of Abraham in Genesis 15. The son called out of Egypt in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And not just a human son, by the way, but a divine son who can stand in the fiery furnace as the fourth man and protect those who belong to him. The son, as Isaiah tells us, upon whose shoulders the government would rest and whose reign would never end. A son who is a forever son is a son we are looking for throughout the Old Testament. And Mark wants us to know the promised Son of God is Jesus. So in verses 2 and 3, he quotes from what is written. Why does he tell us that it's written? Because he believes the Old Testament is the Word of God. That it, is, it has an authority. That it is inerrant, that it is inspired by God, and that we can trust that the promises that are given in Isaiah and in the prophets are coming to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. Mark quotes from chapter 40 and verse 3 of Isaiah, and also from Exodus 23.20 and Malachi 3.1, he combines these verses in verses 2 and 3 to remind us that God has promised to send a messenger to prepare the way for the Lord to deliver His people. And what is He delivering us from? From the wilderness of sin and into God's holy presence. Jesus doesn't just emerge on the pages of the New Testament as a surprise, but He comes as God has promised in the Scripture. Edwards writes this, I love this, Jesus is not an afterthought of God. As though an earlier plan of salvation had gone awry. We think about Jesus like that sometimes, right? Well, the law messed up, or some other plan messed up, or Adam and Eve messed up. But Jesus is crucified before the foundation of the world. God's plan has always been to glorify His Son. Jesus is not a plan B. He's always been the way, the truth, and the life. The messenger, John the Baptist, is to prepare the way 
of the Lord. But here the way is prepared for Jesus. This is important. The, the scriptures that John the Baptist is perhaps quoting, or Mark is quoting in verses 2 and 3, talk about the preparation of the way of the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, to come and to meet His people. But here, those verses are quoted, and then who comes? It is Jesus who comes. So what is Mark's Gospel declaring for us in verses 2 and 3? The way of the Lord... It's promised that God's going to come and visit His people. And then Jesus comes and visits His people. So in the first three verses of Mark's Gospel, Mark is saying, Jesus is the Lord. It's a declaration that we won't get until Mark chapter 8 on the lips of Peter. But when Jesus comes, the Lord God has come. And He's come in fulfillment of the promise to forever abide with His people. Not in a temple made with human hands, but in His people and among His people forever. When Jesus comes, there's a temple in Jerusalem, but the temple is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Edwards writes, John the Baptist is not just the herald of the Messiah, but of God Himself appearing in Jesus of Nazareth. So first, we must see that Jesus fulfills the promise of the Old Testament that God would come not in a physical temple, but He would come and inhabit and indwell and be within and among His people, that He would tabernacle and temple the presence of God. We must see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Secondly, we must confess and repent of our sins. It's, it's not enough, and, and as a pastor, this is one of my greatest concerns. It is not enough to read the Bible and conclude, yep, that's right. Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament promises. He puts all the pieces together. He's the picture on top of the box of the puzzle, and He makes everything make sense intellectually. It's not enough to intellectually recognize that Jesus puts the pieces of the puzzle together. He came to do war against our sin. You know, this is the problem or the potential problem with the process that happens in many Christian traditions called confirmation. Nothing wrong with walking through a systematic course of study and being introduced to the truths of the Gospel. But just because you've walked through the truths of the Gospel doesn't mean that the truths of the Gospel are now real in your heart. You can recognize the abstract reality of sin that is out there, but until you recognize the sin that is in here, you have not encountered and met and known Jesus, the Son of God. It's a good start to know the information about Jesus, but knowing Jesus requires that we understand our need for Him. We are sinners who are personally accountable to God for our sins. And so we see John the Baptist calling people out into the wilderness in acknowledgement of their sin. But here's the good news. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners. John the Baptizer reminds us of the prophet Elijah from 1 Kings 17 and 18 and 19. Elijah wore a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist and he confronted the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that? Out on Mount Carmel, he calls down fire from God and God 
consumes all the water and the sacrifice, and he defeats the prophets of Baal, and he renews God's covenant with Israel on Mount Carmel. John the Baptist comes in the in the light of Elijah, and he's a latter-day Elijah announcing that in Jesus, God has come to conquer our idolatrous hearts and make them new. There's a reason why God sends John the Baptist looking a lot like Elijah, because Jesus is coming to overturn the idolatry in our hearts and to make them alive to the one true God. The parallels between John and Elijah are not accidental. John, like Elijah, operates out in the wilderness. Why not just go into town and tell the people to look for Jesus? Why doesn't he just walk into Jerusalem and Judea and say, Hey, Jesus is coming. Because you will not seek the Jesus of the Bible until you recognize and despise the sin in your heart. Receiving God's blessing always begins with confronting our sin. The Jesus who saves us is not the self-help Jesus. The Jesus who saves us is not the get-rich Jesus. The Jesus who saves us is not the try-your-best-and-you-will-be-okay Jesus. The Jesus who saves us is the Son of God announced by the sin-challenging prophet of God who has come to rescue sinners and lovingly rule over them forever and ever. This truth impacts, by the way, how it is that we point others to Christ. You cannot point someone to Christ without asking that God would help them see their sin. Why does John call people into the wilderness? Because you can't enter the promised land until you understand that you are in the wilderness. You can't enter the land of God's grace until you understand that you aren't in the land of God's grace. You've got to come out of where you are and be awakened to the reality of where your life is apart from Christ before you can get Christ. As Edwards writes, John summons people away from the routines and the comforts of their urban domiciles to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the wilderness. They had to leave their house. They had to leave their work. They had to leave what they were doing. They didn't respond to an invitation to add Jesus into their life. Y'all with me this morning? That's not salvation. Adding Jesus to what you're already doing to make you feel good about what you're already doing is not salvation. Salvation is Jesus is my life. Salvation is I am bankrupt and lost and undone and living in the wilderness apart from the promises of God unless Jesus died for me and He is my King and He is my Lord. That's salvation. And you can know all the truths about Jesus. You could be a great systematic theologian. You could diagram all the sentences. You could do everything you want to do theologically. But until you come to the place where you recognize that you've got to uproot yourself from yourself and see that you are lost and undone and in a desert, barren desert, apart from Christ the King who ushers you into the land of promise, you can't be saved. You're not ready for the Jesus who came until you recognize that your life apart from Christ is stuck in the wilderness. Some of you this morning know all the facts about Jesus. You know all the truths about Jesus. You've been in a baptistry. You walked out of a baptistry because your mom or your dad or your grandma told you to get baptized. 
Because you walk through a book or you walk through confirmation, you walk through all the stuff and you checked all the boxes, but you never confronted the reality of your rebellion against a holy God that really what you wanted when you got Jesus was just a, a, a get out of hell free card. I just want to check that box and feel like I'm okay, but I really don't want Jesus to change me from the inside out and to give me new priorities and a new vision of His glory in the world. I don't really want to live for the glory of Christ. I want to live for the glory of me and feel okay about it. And if that's the Jesus you came to, then I invite you this morning not to get Jesus into your heart, but to surrender your life to the King of kings and Lord of lords and say, God Almighty, help me to live under your power and your authority for the glory of Christ no matter what you ask from me. That's salvation. Danny Aiken writes that John's baptism was preparation for the forgiveness that Christ would accomplish by His death and resurrection. People go out to the Jordan River and what do they do? They confess their sins. They don't just say, I want Jesus. They say, I am a sinner. And they declare that they want to repent, verse 4, or change. And we know the end of the story. That Christ has come not only to forgive our past sins, but to substitute His life for us so that we can be forgiven, not just of what we've done, not just of what we might do today, but so that we can be forgiven forever, which is why Jesus had to come. It's not enough for the past sins to be forgiven. We had to have a substitute because apart from Christ substituting His life for us, we would just keep on sinning. And apart from His pouring out, as we'll see in a moment, His Spirit, we would keep on failing in our walk with Christ. Encountering Jesus, encountering the Jesus of the Bible requires, it begins with a turn from our personal sin. Thirdly, we must recognize that Jesus' might, we, we must recognize Jesus' mightiness and His worthiness. By any standard, John was a weird dude. And I just wanted to put that on a sermon slide. He's a weird guy. I mean, I remember reading about John as a kid and thinking someone really should have gotten him a Snickers bar. It, it really satisfies. But according to, and according to Leviticus 11.22, God declared the locusts clean and acceptable for the Israelites to eat. So, it was okay. And apparently it's high in minerals and protein. So there you go. He, he was covered. You say, well... Why, why does John tell me this? Well, one, it connects, him to John the it connects John the Baptist and the prophet Elijah. Because God said Elijah was going to come before Jesus came. And Jesus later tells us, John the Baptist is the prophet coming in the likeness of Elijah. But, but there's another reason that we get this description of John. John lives in the desert, he eats weird food, and he wears funny clothes not to get attention but actually to deflect it. He is humble in where he lives, he is humble in what he eats, and he is humble in what he wears. And yet, as we see in verses 4 and 5, all the country of Judea and the people of Jerusalem, in other words, it's, it's geographically comprehensive. People from all over the place are coming out to the wilderness. The message is going out, and they're going out to John, verse 5. You know, John could have started his own 501c3, He could have gotten a book deal. He could have started a new diet plan. Locusts and honey, what a treat. He could have filled a stadium or two or three and then live streamed it to his campuses throughout the Middle East. Put up a website. 
I mean, in, in Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus even says, among those born of women, there's not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. This is a good guy. He could have gone multi-site, mega, worldwide, international. But what does John do? He does what every pastor and preacher and prophet of the Lord God Almighty should do. He recognizes that no matter how great he thinks he is, or even Jesus thinks he is, he's still just a prophet. He is not the prophet, the priest, and the king, the Son of God, coming on a rescue mission to receive an inheritance of the nations as promised in Psalm 2. So John goes out of his way to point others to Jesus. He basically says, if you think I'm great, boy, are you going to be floored when you see Jesus. You ain't seen nothing yet. Compared to Jesus, John is not even worthy of being assigned the task of a Gentile slave stooping down to untie the sandals of another. This is the message that John preaches like a herald. It's the message that he proclaims. There's one coming who is mightier or greater than me. His greatness dwarfs the greatness of any other. His worthiness is such that I can't even stoop down and untie his sandal like a Gentile slave. And if you want to know the message that you're going to get at North Roanoke week after week after week, it is this. There is one who's come who is greater. There is one who has come who is worthier. And he's worthier and greater and mightier than any of us. And therefore, we must look away from ourselves and ahead to the one who has come. And the only way that we will persist in this salvation that comes from one who is mightier and worthier is if we get the last point. We must be immersed in the Holy Spirit. We must be immersed. And you say, well, what does that mean? Dunked. Baptized. Did, did you know that the word baptism in your Bible is what is called a transliteration of the Greek? In other words, most of the words in the Greek, they translate into English. But to not start an argument about what baptism is, they transliterate baptism. And so the Greek word is baptizo, and then you see in your Bible, bap baptize. But you know what the word baptize means? You say, well, why, why do Baptists make a big deal about baptism? Because the word means to dunk underwater. It doesn't mean to splash, it doesn't mean to sprinkle, it doesn't mean any of these other ways that people baptize. It means to go down under the water and to come back up out of the water. That is what the word means, to dunk or to submerge, or to immerse into something. You can't make the word mean what it doesn't mean. And that's what the word means. And so that's why I call John the Baptist, John the Dunker. Because that's what he's called in the Bible. That was for free. Just, I mean, let's at least be honest about what the word means. Okay? Then we can have a conversation. But the word means to dunk underwater. There's no argument, there's no debate, it's what it means. So in verse, verse 8, John says, the better Jesus has a better baptism. I've been dunking you underwater, but there's one coming later who's going to dunk you in something that's better than water. In fact, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit is literally what it says. Here's what John is saying, when Jesus comes, He will give you an opportunity 
to have a life that is submerged in God. That He will be in you, that you will dwell in Him. When we truly see the sinfulness of sin and the worthiness of Jesus and give ourselves to Christ the King, when that happens and we say, God, I don't want to be a sinner anymore. I don't want to be lost in the wilderness anymore. I want the life that you have for me. In that moment, before you jump in the baptistry waters, in that moment, the Spirit of God comes upon you through Christ the King who substituted His life for you. He is risen, He is reigning, He is ruling, and He has poured out His Holy Spirit to convict you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And in Ezekiel, we are promised this, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and you will do them. And some of you this morning know all the facts about Jesus and yet you have not yet been immersed in the Spirit of God. When the Holy Spirit, when we get the Holy Spirit, when we surrender to Jesus, we don't just know about God. We live in God. We know God and we long for His presence and we long to serve Him. I don't know about you, but I like going to theme parks. Y'all like theme parks, roller coasters? Wendy Ramser does not like theme parks. I just got the no on that. I like taking our family to theme parks. It's fun. But you know, as a dad, it's different than when I was 15. Because as a dad, well, for a while we had the strollers, and then it's like, what do you do with the water rides? Right? Do you, do you let the kids jump on the water rides early? Because then they're either going to be wet all day and cranky about it, or you got to get a locker, or you got to figure out how you're going to go back out to the car and get a change of clothes because you don't want to fool with the locker. And riding the water rides at the theme park is always a, a crisis for me. Because I would either rather just not do them or do them at the very end and then leave. But when I was 15 and on a youth trip, who cares? I'm going to go get on every water ride there is and then I'm going to go dry off on the Rebel Yell or the Big Bad Wolf or whatever and then I'm going to go get wet again and I'm going to have fun and I don't have to worry about it. Some of you are living a life like a dad who's got to manage everything else. You're trying to check the boxes and organize your life and make your life look like the life in God, but you're not really living the life that God has for you. The freedom that I experienced as a 15-year-old boy going to the theme park and just jumping in and saying, I'm going to do whatever, that's the freedom that God wants you to be able to have in the Holy Spirit of God. He wants to immerse you in the life of God and unpack everything that God has for you when you just jump headlong into the life that God has in store. Some of you know a lot about Jesus, but you still don't know Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And He is the only one who can submerge your life into the life of God and change everything. To know the Son of God, you must be born of the Holy Spirit. You must be baptized in Him. So this morning, 
I want to ask you one question. Do you know Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for John Mark and for his gospel and for his willingness to say to us that you have come. You've come just as you promised. You've come to challenge and remove our sin. You've come as the Lord God Almighty, one who is mightier and greater, greater than we could ever be. And you have come to immerse us, dunk us, overwhelm us in the life of God through your Holy Spirit. God, I pray, if anybody needs to move from the comfort of their lives and to deal with the wilderness of their sins so that you might deliver them into the land of your grace, that you would do it this day. In Jesus' name, amen.